podcasts. And happy Thanksgiving! My name is Ian Castleberry. I'm a writer, editor, and podcaster. You can currently find my work at iancastleberry.com, that's C-A-S-S-E-L-B-E-R-R-Y, and Awful Announcing. I'm hanging my head a bit for not posting a podcast last week. Kind of a combination of calendar logjam and, of course, some laziness bringing me down. Last week was the one where a lot of appointments I kicked down the calendar most of the year finally bottlenecked. Oh yeah, the week before Thanksgiving, that'll be good. And apparently I did that a few times. And it worked out fine, but afternoons were more full than usual. All is good though. I'm healthy. Strong like bull. Still need to lose weight, which is always the case. But I'm going in the right direction. At least I was before the holidays. I'll try to keep it to a slice of pie at the big dinners and minimal helpings of all the other good stuff, like dressing or stuffing, whatever you call it at your table, and mashed potatoes. So it's been two weeks since the last podcast. A couple of people have even asked me what's up. Originally, the plan was to do one or no podcasts during the holiday week, but I ended up doing that a week early. So with people traveling, maybe taking a walk or two to work off dinner or get a breather from family, or needing some audio shopping accompaniment, I figured we could provide some stuff to listen to. But... Trying to cram in some work before the holiday weekend prevented me from doing as much as I wanted. The podcasts. We're bad at time management. New tagline. Now that I think about it, this would have been a good week for an interview podcast, something I've been wanting to do. Maybe I can get a couple in during December when people are in that slower, laid-back holiday mood, feeling a bit contemplative toward the end of a year. All right. Now... I don't want them to gain another yard. You blitz all night! And if they cross the line of scrimmage, I'm gonna take every last one of you out. You make sure that they remember forever the night they played the Titans. If part of your Thanksgiving weekend plans include diving into Disney Plus, I hope you'll take a look at something I wrote last week for Awful Announcing, which was fun to put together. It's been about two weeks since Disney's streaming service launched, and while The Mandalorian and George Lucas tinkering yet again with the Han Solo Greedo scene in Star Wars Episode Four got most of the early attention, people then moved on to their favorite pieces of geekery and nostalgia. But if you're a sports fan, or more particularly a sports movie fan, There are a bunch of those on Disney+. Some of them definitely hold a nostalgic place for those who love them, such as The Sandlot or Remember the Titans. So I thought it would be fun to rank the 10 best sports movies on Disney+. People love lists, and rankings often create some enjoyable arguments. Of course, we're talking about the internet, so some are just going to be assholes with their responses. But please check it out at Awful Announcing if you're interested. I'll include a link in the show notes, but if you go to the podcast's Facebook or Twitter pages, both of which can be found at the podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-S, I've linked to the post there as well. Let me know if you disagree with some of my choices at thepodcast at gmail.com. A couple of commenters weren't happy that I didn't include cool runnings, and I'll admit that may have been a miss by me, but I went with the Dwayne Johnson movie, and I stand by that list. Speaking of that email address, I forgot to mention this on the last podcast, 
But nobody responded to the trivia question I asked at the end of episode 22, two episodes ago. Being a smartass about Don Johnson, I used a clip from his 1986 song, Heartbeat, and asked who played guitar on the song. He appears in the music video. But no one sent in an answer, either because nobody listens to the podcast all the way through to the end, or you absolutely hate that heartbeat song, hate me for getting it into your head for a few hours, and would rather do anything but watch that video on YouTube. You really should watch it, though. It's hilariously bad. A 1980s pop culture time capsule. I'm not going to say the answer, so the trivia question can remain open. But the truck I was going to steal from my neighbor for a prize is now off the table. It's a nice black Chevy Silverado. I don't know which model, though, because I don't know anything about that shit. Actually, I like my neighbor. From a distance, he looks like Sam Elliott, and that got me excited. But then I saw him up close recently while taking a walk, and he looks nothing like Sam Elliott, which was so disappointing. It briefly made me want to steal his truck to give away for a correct trivia answer. But now I've decided to like him, because we've shared that bond of nodding to each other because we're both up for work at 7am. Except he's a roofer, so he does, like, real work. I'm just a weirdo standing out on my patio, sipping coffee and watching the neighborhood wake up while he's walking to his truck. His other truck, which is for work. This was before daylight saving time ended, when the leaves were changing color, by the way. He seems like a cool guy. I just wish he looked like Sam Elliott, like he was supposed to. Oh, look at me. I'm rambling again. Well, I hope you folks enjoyed yourselves. Get you later on down the trail. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Hello, neighbor. Okay, let's talk about A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers is almost too perfect casting. Who else could play Fred Rogers, the kind, gentle man who provided a guiding voice through so many of our childhoods? Going back to when a Mr. Rogers movie project was first announced... Some of the suggestions online included Steve Carell, Matthew Broderick, and Ty Burrell. Sure, they and several other actors probably would have done a good job, and in some cases, resembled Fred Rogers more than Hanks. But Mr. Rogers is also iconic. You can't say he was intimidating, right? But there's nothing imposing or threatening about him, but he's somebody that eyes are automatically drawn to because we feel like we know him so well. He's been in our living rooms. We've been in his. Tom Hanks provides that presence. We all know who he is. We all like him. Does that sound familiar? Hanks already checks off the boxes most would have listed for playing Mr. Rogers. And since he's established himself as a great actor, he can fill in the rest with the talent that he's brought to so many other roles. He can make us believe that he's Fred Rogers, even if he looks nothing like him. Hanks captures that signature wonder and gratitude which Fred Rogers exuded. 
He always seemed so flattered, so thankful whenever someone was teaching him or demonstrating something for him. He showed his audience of children something like how crayons were made, which plenty of adults probably wanted to know too. It's like he was Google before anybody had a computer. There are a couple of scenes in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood during which someone performs for Fred Rogers and Hanks nails that look. He's so joyful and grateful and he can't wait for his viewers to experience it with him. Yet if you weren't certain just how special Fred Rogers and his approach to the world around him were, if you still felt like he had to be too good to be true, he's pitted against his virtual opposite in magazine writer Lloyd Vogel, played by Matthew Reese from The Americans. Vogel is deeply cynical, probably the perfect personality trait for a reporter who tends to see and seek out the worst in people. He automatically assumes that Mr. Rogers is a character. Nobody could possibly be that kind, compassionate, and forgiving in real life. Many of us probably made a similar assumption over the years. This uh, piece will be for an issue about heroes. Do you consider yourself a hero? I don't think of myself as a hero. No, not at all. What about Mr. Rogers? Is he a hero? I don't understand the question. Well, there's you, Fred, and then there's the character you play, Mr. Rogers. Lloyd also harbors some deep resentment toward his father, played by Chris Cooper. His father left their family when his mother was dying and has never forgiven him for it. He can't even keep that anger pushed down when socially appropriate, and despite the pleas from his wife to try and mend that relationship. Who better to meet at that point in his life than Fred Rogers? who may tout forgiveness and compassion more than any other public figure. Lloyd's editor, played by Christine Lottie, implies that she knew exactly what she was doing with this assignment, which Lloyd balks at because he sees himself as a serious journalist and investigative reporter who doesn't do puff profiles. Lloyd Vogel is based on Esquire writer Tom Junode, who asked his name to be changed because the character in the movie and the events he experiences were dramatized and fictionalized for the film. But Juno did write a 1998 profile of Rogers for the magazine, which is the basis for the movie's story and widely available online to be read, if you're so curious. Rather than a Mr. Rogers biography, which probably wouldn't have been terribly interesting, a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood presents the children's television icon largely through the view of other people. And if you want more of a straight biography and haven't seen Morgan Neville's outstanding Won't You Be My Neighbor documentary, please check that out. That's the deeper dive you're looking for. It's available on HBO and can be rented on Amazon Prime. When Vogel's wife finds out that he's doing a profile of Mr. Rogers, she tells him, Please don't ruin my childhood. She knows the sorts of pieces he writes. Roger's producer, Bill Eisler, tries to limit Lloyd's time with Fred, trying to protect him from what he fears will be some kind of takedown piece. Lloyd still pokes a little bit with questions that get a bit personal, trying to get some sort of reaction out of Roger's. Hanks shines in those quiet moments, perhaps fighting the urge to react impulsively before acknowledging that there's some truth to those questions which he's had to confront. Lloyd meets Roger's wife, Joanne, who admits that her husband has to work at being so generous, so willing to understand. That seems to be the beginning of Lloyd realizing that Fred Rogers is genuine. It's not an act. Mr. Rogers teaches children. 
he helps them learn and understand. So when he sees an overgrown child, or more kindly, someone who hasn't let go of a childhood trauma and can't develop as an adult because of it, he does what comes naturally. But maybe what works with children doesn't get through to an adult either, especially when that adult doesn't remember what it's like to be a child, something Fred Rogers has always considered important in connecting with people. That's the core of Tom Junod's real-life profile of Fred Rogers, too. Four and a half stars out of five for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Yeah, it's kind of predictable, but it doesn't matter, because the actors are such a pleasure to watch, and the story is so touching, especially at a time of year when family being together is important for so many. or two ago, a friend suggested that maybe I run shorter clips from my radio appearances when I fall behind, rather than try to cram two or three full segments into a podcast. That idea works well for this week, when playing catch-up and I'm looking at a backlog of radio segments. During one of my baseball spots last week on Y Sports Radio, Pat Ryan and I got into a story that could turn into a big one for baseball, especially if you live in an area where a minor league team, or more than one team, plays. Major League Baseball is proposing to cut 42 clubs from the minor leagues in an effort to reduce travel, improve facilities, especially for top developing talent, and raise pay for a majority of players who are currently paid below minimum wage. From where we're recording, the Asheville tourists appear to be okay, although they could be asked to spend money on upgrading facilities for the players. The ballpark, McCormick Field, has gotten several upgrades over the past few years, with seating, concessions, etc. But several towns in the region are on the list of those which could lose their minor league teams, including Kingsport in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Bristol, Virginia. Chattanooga is also reportedly in jeopardy despite hosting a minor league team since 1885, it's a curious proposal for a sport that arguably needs to do all it can to reach younger fans and fans in regions that aren't near a major league team. I imagine there will be a lot of opposition from towns which could lose their team, and plenty of lawsuits could follow. Okay, let's get into it. Ian, it's good to have you in, buddy. And let's start first with a New York Times story uh, that breaks down how 43 minor league teams could be contracted in a proposal by Major League Baseball. And for folks who maybe haven't been paying close attention to this story, why is baseball looking to eliminate or, if you will, shift uh, these selected teams? The justification Major League Baseball is using in this proposal is that by eliminating 42 teams, first of all, you would eliminate several hundred players from the, the uh, minor league player base. And then uh, that w by not having to pay all of those other players, they could increase the salary for the remaining minor league players. And that supposedly is one of Major League Baseball's initiatives. Uh, they want to increase pay for their minor league players. Uh, minor league players are woefully uh, underpaid for the most part. And 
Major League Baseball is claiming that this proposal would help with that. Also, another consideration, maybe the greatest consideration, is improving transportation and accommodations for these teams by uh, reducing the geographic footprint, reducing travel and keeping leagues and teams that are, are closer to each other geographically closer together to reduce travel, to reduce costs. And then also Major League Baseball is claiming that, you know, that this is in the interest uh, of top prospects and players by mandating that uh, minor league teams update their facilities and make them more suitable to training top prospects, even Things like increasing the number of bathrooms uh, in a clubhouse, uh, workout training facilities, and other things like improving the fan experience, increasing uh, seats, or, or the condition of these ballparks. That is what they're claiming with this proposal. All right. Um, you say claiming with this proposal. Before I give you my opinion, I want to get yours on this. Well, uh, I mean, I think, first of all, I think uh, this is pretty – I mean, it, Major League Baseball wants to institute this uh, after uh, 2021 when their agreement with Minor League Baseball, which I think is called the Professional Baseball Agreement, runs out. But I think you're looking at so many lawsuits and, you know, from these cities that could lose teams and cities that have invested uh, in these ballparks or, you know, could lose that revenue. You're also looking, I think, at a potential challenge to Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption and uh, how they're able to skirt labor laws and laws uh, about uh, minimum wage uh, and so forth, uh, which they don't have to follow the same rules and laws that uh, regular businesses would across this country. And what's interesting, too, just to point out, Major League Baseball, like, for instance, the Asheville Tourists, you know, they're they're the parent team of the Colorado Rockies. The Tourists do not pay the salary of the players there. It's the Rockies who pay, who pay the salaries of these players. And, you know, you, look at, you can look at Major League Baseball and go, okay, this is basically a cost-cutting move is what it can kind of come down to. I mean, yeah, major, minor league players do not, especially in, in the single-A level, they don't get paid a whole lot of money. We we get that. But this reminds me of, like, maybe they plan to cut the preseason short, which I can kind of understand for player safety. But at the same time, you know, we're going to miss out on some players that may not get an opportunity. Like, for instance, you know, we always hear about these guys in the fourth preseason game. It's it's when coaches look at players that maybe they haven't haven't had a chance to look at a whole lot. And, and there are players who are in the NFL right now because they played well in that fourth and final preseason game and they got a roster spot. For me, that's that 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 that's kind of a bummer for me because there's going to be baseball players out there who may not get the opportunity that it, now because of baseball doing this contraction, I'm not really nuts about it. Um, it it kind of smells a little bit of like, yeah, this is just another cost cutting uh, effort on Major League Baseball's part, and apparently Washington's not nuts about it either. What's the nation's capital saying on this, Ian? Yeah, over 100 members of Congress signed a letter that was written. Uh, addressed to uh, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred, saying they were opposed to this move. You know, m- many of these uh, congressmen and senators, you know, speaking on behalf of their communities. You know, for instance, Bernie Sanders. You know, Vermont has a a, a short season uh, minor league team in the New York Penn League. Even just around the D.C. area, you know, there's teams in Frederick, Maryland. Uh, the Nationals have affiliates in Hagerstown, Pennsylvania, and, and Auburn, New York. 
there's a, an affiliate in, in Bristol, Virginia. So I think that the letter also made sort of a veiled threat to uh, what we were talking about in that, you know, Congress pr- supports a lot of these legislative initiatives, including the antitrust exemption, including not holding uh, minor league baseball teams or major league baseball teams to paying their minor league uh, players a, a fair wage uh, as far as minimum wage laws. So, you know, maybe these uh, congressmen implying that uh, those measures could be uh, up for review if Major League Baseball goes through this proposal. You know, what's interesting is is Major League Baseball, it's like, well, you know, we want to pay the players more. But I think what what we don't hear from Major League Baseball is that, uh, for instance, like here in Asheville, I mean, there are people who depend on working that seasonal job with the Asheville tourists. I mean, the tourists are a job generator uh, here in, in Asheville, even if it's just part time, it's five months. And for folks, there are folks who depend on on that money. This is what I mean about Major League Baseball. They're talking about, well, you know, we want the players to be paid more. Well, let's translate that. Is that going to, is baseball still going to pay out the same amount of money with this new, uh, with this contraction, the fewer players as they are with the players right now? Because I'm not hearing anything about the economic impact, however big or small, it's going to have on the communities with those teams. Just to give you an example, one of the teams that is supposedly on the chopping block is the Detroit Tigers double-A affiliate in Erie, Pennsylvania. Erie is in the process of investing $16 million in their ballpark uh, for upgrades, you know, improving the stands, building new concourses, updating facilities for the players. There's $6 million into that $16 million proposal. But if Major League Baseball follows through this timeline and takes away Erie's Major League affiliation uh, with the Tigers or any other Major League club, Suddenly, Erie is looking at sinking all this money into a ballpark that's not going to have Major League prospects come to it. Now, Major League Baseball is supposedly floating out this consolation that putting these teams that that aren't affiliated with Major League clubs uh, into a so-called dream league, where they could still have uh, baseball teams, you know, populated with players that weren't drafted, that that don't belong to a Major League organization, but. You know, part of the appeal and part of the revenue driving power for a lot of these minor league clubs is the fact that they are affiliated. You know, you are seeing, uh, you know, the Yankees of the future in Asheville. You're seeing the Rockies of the future. You know, you look at many of uh, you look at the current Colorado Rockies roster. You know, many players made their way through Asheville. David Dahl, uh, Pat Vileka, Ryan McMahon, etc. If these teams are not affiliated with Major League Baseball. If they're in that so-called Dream League, you're going to have a bunch of guys who, yeah, maybe uh, are playing minor league baseball with a shot at the majors, but their their pathway uh, to a major league job uh, is severely stunted by this. Yeah, you know, this is I don't know. I I, I get frustrated sometimes. It's it's you know I, to me this is just a cost cutting uh, avenue for Major League Baseball to a point. They're saying they're wanting to pay the players more. Okay, uh, you know I'm not sure I. Try Trust Major League Baseball to really get the raise, give the raise to these players that they want. Um, again, minor league players, not major league players. As Ian Castleberry joins the Wise Guys presented by Vistanet Telecommunications. Now, Ian, while we're hearing the Asheville tourists are safe, that's not official. That's just what we're hearing. Um, the Time Story lists three other Sally League teams that could be impacted. You mentioned Hagerstown. Are they on the list? And then who else? Hagerstown is on the list. Also, uh, the Lexington, Kentucky team is on the list, and uh, Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, those are the three uh, Sally League teams uh, that are that could be affected by this proposal. But also, a big part of this proposal is Major League Baseball wants to change the draft. 
They want to move it from June to August and effectively cut it in half to 20 rounds, and then drafted players wouldn't play until the following season. So that would eliminate the need for rookie leagues like the Appalachian League. And you're, a lot of teams in the area are looking at uh, losing their affiliation because of that as well. Uh, the Appalachian League has teams in Johnson City, Kingsport, Bristol, uh, Burlington, North Carolina, uh, Elizabethan, Tennessee. Uh, so you were looking at you know severely cutting away these rookie league uh, affiliations. And again, you know these players that you mentioned, uh, players who get a shot in that fourth preseason NFL game, teams draft players. You know in those later rounds. Now, if if they cut the draft by twenty rounds, you know you're going to have a lot of undrafted players playing for these unaffiliated teams. What is their chance of making uh, a major league roster, let alone uh, an affiliated minor league roster? Yeah, great point, man. Um, and, and I think too, one thing I would totally be down with, and I think uh, the tourists would be as well, and a lot of major league play or minor league players would be, is you know if you're going to do some consolidation, man, do it with the travel. You know, can they reshift the leagues around a little bit? Because I, I think Asheville, you know, they're at when the tourists travel, it's like I think they go past some single A uh, towns or towns with single A teams that aren't in their their league. You know, there's no reason they should be traveling to Lakewood, New Jersey. Yeah, you know, that's like a nine hour right. trip. That ten hour trip that's that's crazy one thing that the, the times article didn't mention this but baseball america originally broke this story and they mentioned that the south atlantic league the sally league could be broken up and that you would have a smaller south atlantic league maybe with six to eight teams and then the remaining teams would form a mid-atlantic league so you'd have another league now, where Ash- Asheville's kind of in the middle geographically, so where would they fit? They would probably stay uh, in the South Atlantic League because, you know, they're south of team, you know, cities like you mentioned, like Lakewood and Hagerstown, uh, uh, Charleston, West Virginia, et cetera. So there, there would still be a South Atlantic League, but it would be much smaller. And then uh, these teams, if they're not shuttered or unaffiliated, very likely are going to form this new Mid-Atlantic League. All right, this is heavy stuff we're getting into with Ian Castleberry. Okay, if I'd recorded a podcast last week, it definitely would have been built around a review of Ford versus Ferrari. Since it's a sports movie, I probably could have written something up for Awful Announcing, but I was feeling generous and suggested it to a colleague instead. Ah, well. But if you haven't seen Ford versus Ferrari yet and are looking for a rousing sports-themed drama with a fantastic cast, Check it out before it gets squeezed out of theaters in the holiday rush of blockbusters and awards contenders. Why exactly should Mr. Ford listen to you? Because we've been thinking wrong. Ferrari. Now, they've won four out of the last five Le Mans. We need to think like Ferrari. Ferrari makes fewer cars in a year than we make in a day. (laughs) We spend more on toilet paper than they do on their entire output. You want us to think like them. Enzo Ferrari will go down in history as the greatest car manufacturer of all time. Why? Is it because he built the most cars? It's because of what his cars mean. Victory. Ferrari wins at Le Mans. People, they they want some of that victory. Now, what if the Ford badge meant victory. Actually, I think Ford versus Ferrari will be an awards contender, so maybe that'll give it some staying power through the end of the year. 
Matt Damon and Christian Bale will certainly get some Best Actor consideration, and I'd be surprised if Tracy Letts doesn't get Best Supporting Actor love for his portrayal of Henry Ford II. The movie also has other strong supporting turns by John Bernthal as Lee Iacocca. Was Iacocca that studly and swaggering when he was young? Hell, I didn't even know he worked for the Ford Motor Company. Ray McKinnon is great as Phil Remington, Carol Shelby's right-hand man and top engineer. If Carol Shelby is Tony Stark, which is a terrible analogy, Remington is his Jarvis. And Josh Lucas? Oh, whatever happened to Josh Lucas? As Ford exec Leo Beebe gets the role he's so damn good at, the slimy prick and kiss-ass who undermines the hero of the story so he can get all the glory, none of which he's earned. How long have we known each other, Ken? I ever break a promise to you? I will put you in the driver's seat at Le Mans. You just shut your mouth and let me do my thing. All right. Morning, Shelby. Morning, Molly. Up yours. I'll go to hell. But Damon as Carol Shelby and Bale as Ken Miles are the stars of this show. Shelby is a former auto racer who has to give up competition due to heart issues. You know somebody is intense when they pop pills like Tic Tacs. He's the marquee name with the ambition, arrogance, and talent to fuel the desire to build a car for Ford that can beat Ferrari at the 24 Hours of Le Mans race. He just needs someone he can trust to drive that GT40, someone who won't be afraid to tell him what doesn't work when test driving. I'm not sure the movie's script, credited to Jez Butterworth and two other writers, allows Damon to display Shelby's charm and swagger enough throughout the story, though Shelby does get one good speech that inspires Miles to buy in, even though he, rightly, doesn't trust a big corporation like Ford to let Shelby have entirely free reign over the project. Shelby is also full enough of himself that he has no problem telling Henry Ford that he's the only guy who can beat Ferrari at Le Mans, because he's done it before. In arguably the movie's best scene, Shelby literally demonstrates it for Ford by driving him in the GT40 on their test course. For Bale, Ken Miles provides a role that he's so good at playing too. Miles is quick-tempered, abrasive, and obsessive, and he doesn't play well with others. As a mechanic who works on other people's sports cars, he tells them that they're not driving their cars right. It doesn't matter what he changes or fixes. As a driver, he's aggressive and bold, but doesn't push the car beyond what it's telling him it can do. His skills as a driver and engineer make him an ideal fit for Shelby's team. But his personality and anti-establishment attitude rubs suits like Leo Beebe the wrong way, and Beebe constantly tries to replace him with another driver that fits the Ford image. Corporate suits and their money constantly interfering with creativity and ambition in the name of bringing glory to a brand and taking undeserved credit is really what this movie is about. You can stick this bloody sticker where the sun... Hey, hey, Bill. Hey, right. Bill, what seems to be the problem, Bill? Well, the problem is that Bill here is an arsehole. No, he doesn't mean that. No, yes, he does. No, yes, he, really he does. Yes, no, he really does think that Bill is an arsehole. I'm just doing my job here. Bill, Bill. One difference between Miles and other characters Bale has played, like Bruce Wayne, Dickie Endlin, John Connor, or Michael Burry, is that he has a soft spot. He's utterly devoted to his son, Peter, 
played by Noah Jupe. Peter idolizes his father, and Ken wants to win for him, to show him what's possible through hard work and a dedication to perfection. As driven as Ken is, as much as he wants to win, as much as he'd rather not do anything else but work on cars and drive them really fast, you get the feeling that it wouldn't matter as much to him if he wasn't doing it for his son. Or his wife, played by Katrina Balfe, who sort of has a thankless role as a gorgeous woman who loves cars. Dream woman, right? But she does have one good scene where she puts Ken in his place, showing that she can be as maniacal as he is when pushed. Is James Mangold an underrated director? I feel like he still is, even though he's done great work with Logan, 310 to Yuma, Walk the Line, and Copland. No, not all of his films are gems. The Wolverine, Night and Day, Kate and Leopold, but the good far outweighs the bad in his filmography. Mangold does outstanding work here with bringing the viewer into that GT40 and putting them on the racetrack at Le Mans. He gets the camera right into the action. We don't see the racing from a distance or look at the cars from an overhead shot, except for in one scene where it's appropriate for him to pull the camera way back. But it's thrilling stuff driving hundreds of miles an hour, and in the rain, for hours and hours. The visuals are helped by the sound design, which provide the engine roars that make auto racing so exciting. These characters are serious car geeks. They know when a car sounds right and when it's saying something's wrong. The sound in the movie has to match that, and it does so. Ford vs. Ferrari gets four and a half stars. It's one of the best movies of the year and should really be seen on a big screen with that big theater sound, so you can immerse yourself in the experience. You'll probably drive your car a bit too fast on the way to wherever you go after seeing it, too. Before we finish, I need to confess that I've been obsessively listening to Huey Lewis in the news for the past week. I'm guessing that's a sentence which hasn't been said too often during the past, say, 30 years. If you've been listening to the podcast regularly, you know I can't resist indulging my love of 80s rock and pop, even when some of that music is bad. Maybe you think all of that music is bad, but I love it, man. I was watching Sunday Night Football with the Green Bay Packers and San Francisco 49ers. And if you watch those telecasts semi-regularly, you know that the producers like to go to commercial breaks with music by bands from the area where the game's being played. So since the game was in San Francisco, the bumpers included songs from Journey, Greg Kinn, Third Eye Blind, Green Day, and a bunch of other acts. You know, I would love to write about this for Awful Announcing, talk to whoever plays a role in choosing the music for those bumpers. But I see the Wall Street Journal had a piece like that about five years ago. Good for you, Tim McGinty, because someone should have written about this by now. But the tune which really grabbed me was the opening notes of Do You Believe in Love from Huey Lewis in the News. Maybe it's because I hadn't heard that song in a long time and it just hit that nostalgia bell in my brain. 
Maybe because it sounds like such a distinctly 1980s song with that synthesizer playing throughout. Yet it also doesn't sound like a song that would usually be played during a football telecast. It's not hard driving. It's upbeat, sweet, and fun. Kind of goofy, really. All of which probably describes the Huey Lewis and the News sound pretty well. That's what made it so funny when Christian Bale killed Jared Leto with an axe to hip to be square in American Psycho. Goofy certainly describes the persona that the group portrayed in their music videos, virtually all of which were short romantic comedies. Lewis was the handsome leading man who got the girl, and the band provided comic relief and color in the background. Guitarist Chris Hayes was the little guy who got in trouble or was in over his head. I love when he gets the busty dominatrix at the end of the Heart and Soul video. Bassist Mario Cipollina was the big, tough Italian guy who nobody wanted to mess with. Drummer Bill Gibson was kind of nerdy looking. Hey, you could be a rock star and wear glasses. That was kind of meaningful to me back then. I'm overlooking Johnny Kala on rhythm guitar and Sean Hopper on keyboards, but they were key to that video persona too. Is it obvious that I've been watching a bunch of Huey Lewis in the News videos over the past few days? That was the YouTube rabbit hole I fell down this week. Although I wonder if songs like Do You Believe in Love set up an unrealistic expectation of life for me as a kid. Like the opening lyrics. I was walking down a one-way street, just a-looking for someone to meet. One woman who was looking for a man. Yeah, that's not how it works in real life. Well, maybe it did for Huey Lewis and many other rock stars in the 1980s. Or anybody else. Or it's just lyrics that rhyme and I'm totally overthinking this. But Huey Lewis and the News were a great MTV band. A huge rock band in the 1980s. And I'm happy whenever I see their music living on. Even if it's just for a few seconds during a football game. Because it unlocks a lot of good music memories for me. And that's the podcast. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. We're also available on several other podcast platforms like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Overcast, and iHeartRadio. Stop by our Facebook page to provide some feedback and a like or two. You can reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter and Instagram at the podcast. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-S. And if you'd like to email, send along a note to thepodcast at gmail.com. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and enjoyed spending time and eating a great meal with family and or friends. Hopefully there weren't too many tense political arguments or you didn't get caught having to talk for very long to that relative or relatives who you don't like. We haven't done the big family dinner in podcast land for quite a few years. Everybody's kind of scattered now without my grandmother or even my father to bring everybody together. And, well, spending a holiday with my sister's husband and his family just isn't going to happen for a variety of reasons. I'll accept the blame for that, though. But we had many great gatherings and meals in my family, and I'll always cherish those memories. Just hanging out with Mama Cass and maybe one or two others now... 
eating, napping, watching football, eating, and napping is all I want or need now. I don't need a big production, but maybe we'll get back to that one day. Also, I hope the podcast is part of your Black Friday shopping experience or your travels back home as the weekend ends. That'd be awesome, and I'm certainly thankful if that's the case, especially while I've had trouble sticking to a consistent schedule over the past few weeks. Part of the problem is that I write a lot of this out. I'm just not a good enough talker to spontaneously go and maintain a train of thought. I gotta map out a path, but I'm gonna try and tighten it up in December. Okay, there are a lot of movies being released in theaters, so we'll be reviewing some of them next time out. Knives Out, The Irishman, Queen and Slim, we'll see. Maybe we'll catch up on Watchmen, and I need to catch up on The Good Place. Fork and shirt balls, how did I fall behind again on that show? And I'm overdue to talk about The Mandalorian. Baby Yoda has been my other pop culture obsession besides Huey Lewis in the news this week. Actually, that little green guy and his big eyes and ears have probably been a bigger obsession for me. It's a problem. Until then, it's probably kind of gross if your Thanksgiving leftovers last past Monday, right? Take care of that. I'll help you if necessary, unless all you have left are the sweet potatoes. I like sweet potatoes, but I eat enough of them on my own. Nutritious carbs and all that. Thank you and good night. (laughs) 